Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything has a history, even the most unexpected of subjects, like bananas, tails and leaves. Ooh, I think we should... Since it's autumn coming along, Sam, maybe something on leaves would be good. It's a wonderful idea. That's one of the best ideas you've had for some time. Is it? Is it? I'm, history of leaves. I'm Brilliant. full of good ideas. Of course, for me, it will be leaves of manuscripts. Uh, however, we could do bricks, hicks and slicks, tricks, ricks and licks. I know we've done the history of tongues, haven't we? But licking is great. It's, of course, all about the rise of the gummed envelope. Of course it is. Everything, everything, Sam, as you know, comes back to the history of the letter. Stationary, generally. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> However, for the moment, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of trust is in fact all about 17th century Dutch merchants, atrocities against First Nation children in Canada, stolen generations in Australia, and the extension of credit and trade networks. Who knew, Sam? Sounds fascinating. Or that the history of jam is in fact all about World War II, rationing and the Women's Institute, Think Jam and Jerusalem. It's also about 17th century recipes. It's about empire, sugar, colonial trade and slavery. Of course it is. Wonderful stuff. Two excellent topics. Um, you're probably wondering who is telling you all this. Of my fellow presenter, if he were a cocktail maker and history was gin, he would knock you up the best French 75 you've ever had. That's 10 millilitres of gin, 10 of orange liqueur, 10 millilitres of archival research and a top-up of fizzy creativity of your choice, but I would recommend a sparkling Prosecco of the past. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University's Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, and I can imagine where you're orienting yourself in this gin-related episode. Um, however, for the moment, you may well be wondering, who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Professor Daybell co-pilot this excellent episode? Well, let's just say that if he were a gin-related historian, and this comes with an apology because I was not feeling particularly original at all, but he'd only be William Hogarth himself, he of the Gin Lane uh, picture... Um, uh, such a scourge is he of the evils of drinking in charge of history. So brilliant is he at uncovering 
in sober detail the history in the archives. Yes, you've guessed it, is the famous historical adventurer himself, Dr Sam Willis. Do you think I got away with that one? Just. Just. <laughs> yeah, well, I was making it up on the fly as I... As I was As there. Often do. Uh, guys, hello. Uh, welcome, everyone. We are doing the history of gin, um, which is a, a wonderful subject and allows us to rampage all over in the past. Um, I immediately thought about um, Hogarth. I think a lot of people would. would um, and the, the, the horrors of... Uh, poverty and gin drinking as it took over the streets of London in the 18th century. Do you know what? Um, but I wanted to get away from that and I, I went, ended up in all sorts of different places. What were you going to say, James? Uh, do you know what? I was going to say that I've just come back hot foot uh, down the A38 from Plymouth where I attended a seminar uh, by the chief medical officer of this country, the United Kingdom, Chris Whitty, who was an extraordinary individual. Um, but I was just struck because... I knew that I was going to be recording uh, this episode on gin. And what did he have up on one of his slides but Hogarth's Gin Lane? Because the talk was all about coastal communities and it's all about the big data research that the University of Plymouth has been doing. And a brilliant colleague of mine, Sheena Asthana, um, in the medical school, about the, um, the... the health-related problems that coastal communities are facing because you get a particular kind of demographic in there. And one of the things that, you know, alcoholism, you know, and and, and social disparity and all those kind of... those sort of ailments that you associate with, um, you know, impoverished regions you see in, you know, in, in coastal communities. And gin was one of them. So drinking and alcoholism. And that was one of the things that I was hoping to talk about uh, today. I see it rather, the, the sort of gin craze in the 18th century, I see it rather as a sort of um, almost like the crack academ- epidemic in uh, in America uh, and California in the 1980s. So I was going to talk about that. I was also going to talk uh, a little bit about um, gin palaces and the architecture of indulgence, the architecture of intoxication. Mm. Sounds very good indeed. Well, let me start. I just want to talk about the Dutch physician Franciscus Silvius, 1614 to 72. He's one, a really interesting person. He's one of the earliest defenders of the theory of circulation of the blood in the Netherlands. Um, he's often credited with the invention of gin in the 17th century. But beware, because this series um, were rejected by many historians, because there's actually proof of juniper, junior, juniper-flavoured juniper alcoholic uh, beverages and medicines as well long before this um, some believe that gin actually has its origins in the monasteries of Italy I think my point to begin with James is that if you were just doing a straight history of gin um, even that is actually very contested which I'm not particularly surprised about because there's something so so yummy about it um, but thinking about how you might you might explore this in a more unexpected way um, being a, a good maritime and naval historian, I decided to immediately just go and explore a little bit of the history of Dutch courage, which is linked to the idea of, of increasing your bravery uh, by drinking gin or possibly other spirits. And it's believed to link back to the Anglo-Dutch wars. So that's the second half of the 17th century 
um, the first bit of that, so 1650 to 74, 75, or the Thirty Years' War, um, which was a bit earlier, kind of a generation earlier, and it was more focused on mainland Europe, whereas the Anglo-Dutch wars of the 1650s were very much naval and maritime. Um, and it's actually believed to refer either to the use of gin by the Dutch or perhaps by British as well, to people to calm themselves before battle, which uh, immediately raised a very obvious question, James. It's, what alcoholic drink of choice would you have before entering battle? What would I, I have? I, yes, I, I would have a Mezcal Negrini, which is one ounce of Mezcal, one ounce of Campari, one ounce of sweet vermouth, and it completely levels you. <laughs> I'm not sure what I'd have. Something um, I probably wouldn't. Well, I wouldn't turn to alcohol. I don't think. Oh. I think I'd want a shot of coffee or something mm. to sort of give me, you know, energy and not sort of you know dampen me if I were going into battle. Uh, but it, what a horrifying thing! Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's interesting, kind of how and why this has even come about. The first time it's actually written down, there's any written example of it, comes from the trial of a British naval captain. But many generations after, this is in 1797. This is about um, the Battle of Camperdown. So it's a battle between the Royal Navy and the Dutch. It's a really interesting period, actually. Many people think that the era of the Napoleonic Wars and and the French Revolution is all about fighting the French at sea. But, of course, it's much more complicated than that. We're fighting all sorts of people, uh, including the Dutch. And Camperdown itself is widely considered one of the hardest fleet battles in history. Anyway, at the trial of Captain Williams in a court-martial, he was asked, Do you recollect, recollect during the time we were firing my saying to you that I was sorry to see a person a little intoxicated at such a time, but as we were fighting on the Dutch coast, I suppose he thought it necessary to lay in a stock of Dutch courage. So what we've got here is kind of a, an implication or perceived drinking culture of the Dutch. Um, and... Uh, there's another actual reference to something similar here. This is from Edmund Waller. He's an English poet uh, in the 17th century, so 1606 to 1687. Um, so more than a century before that previous quote I had. And he doesn't actually use the phrase Dutch courage, but he certainly implies it. And he's writing about a naval battle between the English and the Dutch called the Battle of Lowestoft in 1665. And it's called it's a pamphlet called Instructions to a Painter for the Drawing of the Posture and Progress of His Majesty's Forces at Sea, under the command of His Highness, and together with the battle and victory obtained over the Dutch, June 3rd, 1665. And he writes, The Dutch, their wine and all their brandy lose, disarmed of that from which their courage grows. Now, the exact kind of reasons behind the phrase is pretty unclear, but um, it's certainly, I think, uh, disparaging of the Dutch. That's um, the kind of the bottom line, the, the takeaway, takeaway point. So there you are, James, a bit of just a bit of chat about Dutch courage. Oh, Sam, that's excellent. Excellent. We love a bit of Dutch courage. So I wanted to explore this phenomenon of the gin craze in the 18th century. And this was something that I knew a little about, a little about. I'd read I'd read various sort of you know, bits and pieces about it. But just looking, reading through it again and doing a little bit of research for this, it did strike me the sort of modern parallels that we have today with some of the... If you look at, as I was saying earlier, if you look at the 
spread of crack cocaine uh, in the United States in the in the 1980s. I mean, this seems that to be exactly the kind of situation that you have in the, you know, in the 18th century um, with the rise of of gin, and it's it's something that also connects to our our present. You know, and I talked already about the connection to coastal communities and the sort of impoverished areas in the country and the, you know, the the prevalence of of alcoholism. You know, um, you know and I think we are struggling with alcoholism uh, in, you know, in, in throughout the world. Um, you think about how, you know, young people uh, nowadays play sort of, you know, all sorts of drinking games, um, the 40% rise in liver disease as reported by the parliamentary um, heptology group. You know, this is something that is, that's that's quite extraordinary. Um, and from its sort of, um, it, it sort of um, entry into British society, particularly in London from the 1680s onwards, we then go into a, we then see quite how, it proliferates within towns. It is so incredibly cheap to buy. You know, uh, there are gin shops almost everywhere. And this leads to all kinds of problems. It leads to ensuing moral panic, but also there are concerns around public health, around public order, you know, issues around the kinds of behaviour that's being exhibited by uh, the poor, particularly also by women. And then what we have is a a crackdown. So a series of five major acts are passed trying to control gin between in, in almost sort of 25 years, between 1727 and 1751. And I think you can see a parallel that this is a kind of, you know, this is a sort of 18th century war on drugs in the same way that you've, you know, you've got in certain parts of the world nowadays. Um, I think the extraordinary thing, though, is that people didn't quite know what was what were going to be the consequences of this when it comes to when it comes to England from Holland. It is actually seized with with some enthusiasm. Um, and, you know, there are people who benefit from it. The distilling industry, for example, receives certain favours from government officials. There are landowners who are able to take um, advantage of the demand for corn, you know, for example. So all of these are real catalysts for driving this gin craze. And then it's not until, you know, several decades later that they realise exactly what is, you know, what is what is wrong with it, you know, what it actually does. And, you know, when you think about it from a from a, a social point of view, just the ease with which you're able to get it. Apparently in London, um, it was it was within everyone's reach, you know, and throughout London, every fifth house had some catered for gin in in some way. There's a superb little article on gin and Georgian London in History Today, uh, which is by, let me just scroll down, I'm looking at it here, Thomas Maples. Uh, and it's um, and it's a superb little piece that sort of outlines all of the, the sort of social ills that are associated with it. Um, the legislation that we see, these acts of parliament that are put through trying to control 
uh, gin consumption, which which fail almost uniformly um, because people enjoy getting uh, inebriated very cheaply. Uh, and there are riots connected with not being able to to get gin. So people are becoming, you know, addicted to it. Um, Henry Fielding, uh, the the novelist, um, is is quite um, is quite um, you know is quite vocal uh, in the 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 criminal elements that arise from it. And in, in an inquiry into causes of the late increase in robbers. He argues that basically the major cause of this crime is on gin consumption and drunkenness upon the poorer classes. He stated that drunkenness was a vice by no means to be consumed as a spiritual offence alone, since it was hoped many temporal mischiefs arise from it. Wretches, he continues, are often brought before me charged with theft and robbery, whom I'm forced to confine before they are in condition to be examined, and when they have afterwards become sober, I have plainly perceived from the state of the case that the gin alone was the cause of the transgression. Now, if you go from something like that and you start having a look at the court records, you only need to go to something like Old Bailey Proceedings Online. And if you have a look at this wonderful online resource, for the 1700s and put in a search term, you will find that about 1,100 or so court cases feature crimes that were committed where gin played some kind of role in it. So people were either fighting over it, they were inebriated from it, they were in a sort of gin, you know, gin shop. Um, and there's one, one case that I want to tell you about that I came across, and this is from March 1734 when it goes into the, the old Bailey courtroom in London. And it relates to a single mother called Judith DeFore, who had been charged of murdering her own daughter. And the court proceedings um, relay how DeFore, uh, and I quote, took the child into the fields and stripped it, tied a linen handkerchief hard about its neck to keep it from crying, and then laid it in a ditch. Now this Judith is a particularly sort of, you know, wretched figure in this trial. She's uh, uh, somebody who is addicted to, to gin. She's, a, you know, uh, an addicted gin drinker. Um, and she's asked to explain why she did this and how this occurred. And she, her, her story is that she had intended to sell her daughter's coat and stay for a shilling and the petticoat and stockings for a groat in order to purchase a quartern of gin. So this whole thing of like taking her child into the fields, taking off all its clothes, tying a handkerchief round its round its mouth so that it can't um so that it can't it can't cry out is basically so that it can get, she can get its clothes off and sell them so that she can feed her addiction. And of course, you know, a jury hearing that kind of story finds her guilty and punishes her with death. Um, she happens to be pregnant at the time, uh, and she makes a plea for pardon because of her, the unborn child, uh, inside her. And this plea was ignored, and the execution went ahead uh, completely as planned. Um, and in the end, so you know, the, the, this, you know, the, I suppose what this is is the 
the drinking of gin, the consumption of gin, the addiction to gin had basically caused her to murder her own daughter. And, you know, and this it's cases like this that then feed into some of the serious political responses that we have to gin. And this is sort of part and parcel of the background that then leads to these um, these um, anti-gin laws uh, that we see throughout the uh, first half of the 18th century. So there we are, Sam. Hmm. Criminality and stuff. gin. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, a terrible story of someone uh, leading to murder their own daughter. I, my dad's addiction to gin uh, led him to blow up a bit of our house. Hmm. <laughs> Quite an extreme way of putting it. But um, I was also thinking, as as we do with histories of the unexpected, often apply it to our own lives, our own histories, to sort of gain inspiration about how to think of something. And I remember walking into our larder when I was sort of seven or eight or something, and it was a little little cold room just off the kitchen and I went in there and the the whole thing was covered in purple liquid but dad had made um he tried to make slow gin so you know gin mixed with a bit of sugar and a bit of slows those wonderful little um purple fruit you get on blackthorn hedges um and it had it had exploded it went, such was the pressure inside of the fermentation and um I do remember that very vividly I was quite shocked at um you know, something being left on its own and made of such such lovely natural ingredients could actually um, cause cause a quite frightening explosion. I mean, there were shards of glass jammed into the doors. Slow Amazing gin is thing. such a waste of gin, I think. Don't you think? It's a waste li- of good gin. I like it. I really oh, like it. I, it's a bit sweeter and a bit smoother. Uh, I've right. always loved it. Yeah. So no, I won't. I won't agree with you there. From the age um, of seven, when you licked it off the walls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was, it was, all I was all I was fed fed on. Um, but I suddenly thought, I tell you what, let's look into slow gins because what slow gin? Because what actually is going going on there? Um, it had. It, there are some really interesting cultural implications of slow gin. Um, the first point is that. Yes, okay, it's made, you go go out, you get, you pick your slows, you mix it with your gin and a bit of sugar. So there are three fairly major ingredients, all of which have massive historical implications. Gin, sugar and slows. And I'll just leave your minds, your listeners' minds to um, to, to tick over what, what those might be. Um, so it produced a sweet... Uh, sort of purplish drink and it was known <clears throat> as um, rather disparagingly as, as the poor man's port so if you think about the 18th or 19th centuries and where the, where proper fortified spirits had come from like port or Madeira there's a clue for you um, it's all to do with uh, colonialism and maritime trade as well um, the island of Madeira you know produced Madeira and so you need to be able to import it it's quite expensive you need you know the appropriate land where 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 you can uh, grow the ingredients to make the drink but slows are properly accessible to everyone you can walk out pretty much anywhere in the english english countryside find a hedge find some slows stick it in some gin with a bit of sugar and off you go um the link with sugar obviously is interesting you can't make it without sugar and as it was known as a poor man's um sort of version of port the point about this is you don't just make it with sugar you could what mattered is that you you made it with uh affordable sugar 
So this isn't at a, from a period when sugar was insanely expensive. Um, it was from a period when sugar was mass produced uh, in British colonies by slaves. So the ability to make the slow gin means you have to have the affordable sugar, which then, of course, you know, links to um, the, the enormously and well-established slave economy of the 18th century. Uh, but the final thing about it, which I thought was particularly interesting, is that you, you, you get slows from blackthorns, right, from a hedge. And that should make you go, ooh, but why are there so many hedges made of blackthorn in the English countryside. And oh, it does, the, Sam. It does. The answer to that, of course, are the enclosure acts of the 17th and 18th centuries. So what you're, you've got here is the cordoning off of what was previously common land for private agriculture. And what's the easiest and quickest way of making a hedge, a proper barrier hedge? And the answer, of course, is with blackthorn because it's spiky. So that is why there are so many blackthorn hedges around the English countryside. That is why there were so many slows around. So it's all to do with um, privatisation of nothing less than the English countryside itself. Nevertheless, once you've got that and you've got your um, cheap imported sugar, you have all of the facilities in place for people to produce slow gin easily, uh, quickly and, of course, cheaply. So a fascinating little history there, um, which takes us right across the Atlantic to um, the slave um, uh, slave economies of the Caribbean and also to um, the, the privatisation of common land and, and you know, the establishment of, of, of mass farming and the, the, the huge changes to the English landscape which happened between the 16th and the 18th. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Sam Willis, gin is nothing less than an explanation for the enclosure movement. That's amazing. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? I, I'm going. I, your, your talk about your exploding uh, larder uh, I, I, has made me 
want to talk about my one of my own most pleasurable experiences of gin uh, in recent years. A few years ago, before lockdown, there was a charming custom in a little village nearby where I live in Topsham called a safari supper. And the idea is that you all, um, you basically go on safari to have dinner. So you all turn up, partners turn up at a at one house in the in the village, and then you are you go there for a welcome drink. Gin was not included there, but then you get given a little slip of paper, and you are told where to go for your starter. And so you cycle off around the village uh, to your hosts, and then you turn up with another three couples. So there are eight of you there, and you have your first course and then towards the end of the first course you're then given another slip of paper and where you which tells you where you are going for your 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 main and so you sort of pootle off meet another sort of six people you're given another slip and then you go somewhere for for dessert with another sort of random six people none of these people you actually necessarily know some of them you will but then Everyone at around just before midnight ends up at the house, at another house, a fifth house at the very end, um, which is the house where everyone congregates to have a, a sort of a, a sort of carouse into the early hours. And on this occasion, when, when we turned up, we were greeted by the most extravagant range of gins you have ever seen in your life. There must have been a dozen bottles this couple were supreme gin aficionados. Um, and and what, what struck me was it wasn't just the variety of local gins and gins that have been flavoured with this, that and the other, but also the variety of tonics. Um, this got me thinking, of course, about architecture and and the uh, the way, the role that architecture, I suppose, plays in the consumption of gin. And so what I'm going to think about is a sort of spatial approach to to gin. And you think of these 18th in the 18th century gin cellars um, and gin shops cropping up everywhere. And these people, these are really sort of improvised um, things. It could be in people's sort of almost in people's sort of personal homes. These people have a, an incredibly bad reputation. Um, so, for example, a spokesperson from the London Grand Jury um, that was that was sort of looking into this claimed in 1736 that most of the murders and robberies lately committed have been laid and concentrated at gin shops. And Mandeville, in his Fable of the Bees, uh, writes of that he knows of no more miserable shift for a livelihood than a gin than selling gin at gin shops. So these are the sort of crack dealers of the 18th century to sort of continue that motif that I was on about before. Mandeville then goes on to sort of note the the supposed good qualities of a good gin seller, uh, writing uh, that that a gin seller must in the first place be of a watchful and suspicious as well as a bold and resolute temper that he may not be imposed upon by cheats and sharpers, nor outbullied by the oaths and imprecations of hackney coachmen and foot soldiers. 
And he continues, in the second, he ought to be a dabster. I, I liked that because that's your nickname for me. A dabster at gross jokes and loud laughter and have all the winning ways to allure customers and draw out their money and be well versed in the low jests and relleries the mob makes use of to banter prudence and frugality. He must be affable and obsequious to the, to the most despicable, always ready and officious to help a porter down with his load, shake hands with a basket woman, pull off his hat to an oyster wench and be familiar with a beggar. With patience and good humour, he must be able to endure the filthy actions and viler language of nasty drabs and the lewdest rake-hells, and with a frown or at least aversion, bear with all the stench and squalor, noise and impertinence that the utmost indigence, laziness and ebriety can produce in the most shameless aband and abandoned vulgar. So you really get a sense of what these sort of gin... Um, gin shops alike. But then on the back of that, I read the most extraordinary article um, by a scholar called Julius Skelly, and it's entitled Addictive Architecture, The Crystal Palace, Gin Palaces and Women's Desire. And it builds from the 1851 Great Exhibition in London, at Crystal Palace. Um, and one of the things that that critics of the time complain about they are concerned about the alcohol consumption at crystal palace that it would function as an alternative to the public house for working class people and actually victorians were concerned that the opulence the splendor of something like crystal palace was a hugely uh, uh, quote addictive form of architecture it was like a huge giant public drinking space and that they argue that the structure of it the very sort of you know the very sort of fabric of it the built environment of it was uh, was to sort of encourage people to seek um consumption of alcohol and the big concern here is that in with the rise of these victorian palaces these gin palaces the real concern was the impact that it had on female consumers that they were, you know, they were encouraged to go into these kinds of places, you know, where they would frequent with dangerous, with dangerous sort of um, types. And a part of this, part of this then, is that is part of the essay is around the Crystal Palace um, and the Great Exhibition um, of of London in eighteen fifty one, and the Gin Palace. And the idea, the main argument is that they. These are seen as public drinking spaces that are often criticised for seducing drinkers with their ornate decoration and shop-style windows. So these these aesthetic accoutrements, you know, are what allures people in. The famous architectural historian Marc Girouard uh, argues that the the gin the term gin palace was used around 1834 to describe gin shops in this new flamboyant style. And if you look at the characteristics of them, they're characterised by gas lighting, large plate glass windows, beautiful counters, 
decorative elements, you know, incorporating iron and wood. We both ate out at the Ivy in Exeter last week. Uh, and I can imagine it's something of the opulence of the, the bar space there that we're seeing in these gin, gin palaces. These are a far cry from the kind of gin shops and dram shops that I've been talking about earlier on in the 18th century that are these sort of real cesspit places. And then the argument then goes on um, to to look at the to look at the um, you know to look at the fabric of some of these places. And there's a beautiful account in in a, a tract called The Witch of Endor and the Dram Shop, where it describes the exterior of it. If and this is published in the 1830s. If you observe the dram shops, you will see that attention has been paid to the point of concealment in the first place the inner doors are provided with a spring so as to shut again as soon as the customers are entered in the second place the windows are constructed as to render it impossible for passengers without to observe what is going on within in complete contrast to this the crystal palace is something that is opulent that is open that it doesn't hide it away, but actually is encouraging people to come in. What you've got in these sort of in these sort of gin shops is a, a sort of more darkened um, uh, sort of place that sort of that that traps people inside. Whereas if you look at the the gin palaces, it's about the lighting, the facade, you know, that luring working class people, especially women, inside into their into their depths and the concerns with these are manifold it's concerned about about the consumption of alcohol it's the concern about the presence of women in public you know either either desiring alcohol or consuming alcohol and that of course has all sorts of issues around you know wanting to control female behavior around prostitution around immorality all of those kinds of things that can be seen to take place within these kinds of institutions. So I thought that was a wonderful article. I really enjoyed reading it. It's a really sort of, you know, cutting edge uh, example of, I suppose, socio-cultural history meets this sort of architectural built environment spatial approach to the past. There we are, Sam. Uh, uh, amazing. And the idea of, you know, designing buildings specifically to entice people in, I think is wonderful. Somebody should do the history of a Weatherspoons. <laughs> you know, what is it about the Weatherspoons that sort of lures you in? We are in the we, we are in the capital of Weatherspoons and by the University of Exeter, there is the most opulent Weatherspoons you have ever seen in your life. This is not a, this is not your sort of regular uh, Weatherspoons drinkery with cheap alcohol it has cheap alcohol but it is also in the most opulent orangery uh, one of the most beautiful buildings in exeter i would imagine sam yeah yeah it's, it's extraordinary it's, it's, huge it's gardens good. yes nice place to hang out under the pine trees uh, guys i hope exactly. you've enjoyed that our uh, our little history of gin there's much more stuff coming. We're doing the history of dolls next, so you've got that to look forward to. Do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr Sam Willis. And if you're interested in the history of the sea, maritime history, please um, follow the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at James Dable. You can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. We're also on Instagram and Facebook, and we have a lovely website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. And if you want to be a patron go to patreon and we have a histories of the unexpected page there 
if you'd like to support us in what we are doing in this little podcast that we have. Absolutely. Any help you can offer will be hugely gratefully received and it will allow us to increase the number of episodes that we produce so we can change the way people think about the past. That is nothing less than our goal. Thank you all so much for listening, guys. We'll be back again soon. Cheerio. Bye, guys. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.